Welcome to Church Hurts and the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality with a dash of recovery thrown in. If you've ever had questions about the church, maybe a bit jaded in your attitude toward religion, well, you've come to the right place. Our host, he was an honors philosophy student, ordained a Presbyterian minister, planted three churches, taught at a prestigious university, but now, now he's just an aging curmudgeon who never quits asking the question why. The host of Church Hurts and Dr. John Bass. I grew up in a home where I was encouraged to read, but perhaps not in the healthiest of manners, but encouraged to read nonetheless. My natural adversarial personality did not accept such prodding easily. My pushback coming in the form of, or preference to, physical activity. Give me a ball of any kind, and I was happy. I happened to have the good fortune of growing up in Pittsburgh, the second cloudiest city in the United States, with winters unfriendly to little boys wanting to run and play outside, except maybe for our periodic football games in the snow a rare opportunity. Nasty weather drove us indoors, restlessly impatient, looking for something to do. Once bored enough, the ample books awaited to be opened by my hesitant, youthful eyes. While a few classics were consumed in such moments, before long I discovered various genres more to my liking. The Hardy Boys mystery novels were consumed, along with Nancy Drew and her equally challenging exploits. Next, escape novels from World War II were discovered in abundance. Reading itself could be an escape, I realized, something much needed in my abusive, unfriendly childhood home. I guess there's something good about learning the value of books for escape and enjoyment before accepting their value for learning itself. It was many years later I embraced the enjoyment of education expanding one's mental geography while traveling through time between the pages of a book. I picked up a new author a few months ago, wondering if he would be worth reading. My rule is to read at least 50 pages before rejecting the book for good. I was cynical about this guy for reasons not worth elaborating upon, but I got through the first 50 pages more than a little intrigued. I'm on my 14th book now and recently discovered I have the option of going for 50 more. The characters are deep, real, multidimensional, and struggle with the same issues in life as I do. They live in times I want to know more about and in places I want to go to. Their relationships struggle with things I struggle with, and their doubts seem to match my own as well. So today, on Church Heard Sand, you get to meet that author along with me. His name is Michael Phillips. And he doesn't do many interviews. He's a writer, not a public speaker, but he's graciously agreed to come out of his shire of sorts to be with us. Welcome, Michael Phillips, to Church Hurts And. Michael, I have admitted to being a new reader of your novels, but I also must admit I've never binged read any author as I have read you. Can you tell me about your church background and faith growing up, which leaks transparently into the pages through your characters? Yeah, I'm going, I'd like to start with a, a diversion 
that your introduction just I I can't I can't resist has nothing to, nothing to do with writing or my books. You mentioned Pittsburgh as what did you say the second cloudiest city it in is. the country? Yes. My dad and mom landed in Northern California after World War II, sort of by accident. My dad was a photographer in the army and got a job at what was reportedly the foggiest airport in the United States. That's the little segue from your, uh, your uh, own personal history. And that's why we wound up in Northern California. He took a job at, the, at an airport as the photographer for experiments in displacing fog so that planes could land. Just an interesting, <laughs> and none of it worked, but that's why we wound up in, um, in Northern California. Which also may explain why I'm in Southern California. And, <laughs> yeah. And people in the rest of the country who think California is like one thing. I'm like, no, no, no. I don't like Northern California. <laughs> we finally got out too. I lived there all my life and enjoyed it. My, my folks, we, we were raised on a country little few acres that my dad bought right in the middle of the redwoods and the redwood forest was my childhood oh, no. playground and my folks were part of a, a small evangelical baptist church and it was your classic 1950s evangelistic or not evangelistic but evangelical church um, altar call every Sunday, the the routines of Sunday school and worship service and so forth. And as you grow, you you don't grow beyond that. You your faith and your whole perspective deepens, expands beyond those childhood beginnings. But I absolutely treasure that time because of the the relationships and the the family friends that we had all part of that church that, and they just, they provided a soil and an environment of goodness and hard work and virtue and all of those sort of anachronistic traditional values that people look down on today. And I just am so thankful for that, for that, um, that church upbringing. What a different response than so many people in that kind of traditional background, particularly when you get into really kind of, I guess it was fundamentalism uh, when the big debate was, should every service have an altar call at the end? And some people look back to those, um, those times and really respond negatively. And yet you, resp you have just described it, accepting the really healthy part of it. Um, was there a time you, you responded negatively well even at the time it was boring beyond words <laughs> um we had the most dynamic wonderful pastor ever he was everybody loved him he was energetic outgoing he sang he it, it was just a great environment and my best friend was the pastor's son, and he was my age. We had so many adventures together. We just, it was a great friendship. 
but church, I mean, we were young and my friend's father's sermons were boring, <laughs> but it was still the whole life environment that was so profoundly grounding and anchoring. And as I've grown, of course, my, as my writing reflects my, my theology, my perspective has hugely expanded beyond that. And I've got, I hold some theological views that my dear pastor Sam would probably turn over in his grave for, but it, it, it doesn't make me love that background, love him any the less. It's, that's my foundation. So there was no, there was never really a time when I doubted or didn't value it. I just continued to grow. Now, if I were to stereotype Christian novels, and to be honest, I have to say the fact that your works are even put in that category, I personally find a little bit offensive because um, I, I just don't like the category. I'd, I'd start with unflattering adjectives about Christian novels that include things like simplistic and predictable and unimaginative. And yours are anything like that. It's like really good writing. I mean, where do you get your inspiration from? The classic uh, question that authors get asked, where do your ideas come from? And I always say, I don't know. They just, if they're there, they're there and they come. You don't manufacture an idea, but I, I, I didn't, your background, I listened to you and I'm just envious of all the reading you did and everything. I was not a literary, I didn't have a literary background. My favorite reading when I was young was Donald Duck comics and my mom, our mom bought a subscription to Donald Duck comics and my sisters and I were down at the mailbox every Thursday afternoon. So it, it isn't from this great wealth of literary uh, reading and background that I get my ideas, but as I've grown as a Christian, my experience with McDonald, I guess I've learned I don't know. I'm a thinker, a questioner. I, I love to ask questions and a lot of my theological ideas as I've grown have come from just asking questions about who is God really? And what are the, what attributes might he have that maybe we weren't taught in Sunday school that are bigger than what we were taught and questions about what it really means to be a Christian and to live the life and so forth. I don't know. I think a lot of my ideas do come from, from asking questions about what spirituality and life really mean and wanting to encourage Christians to think about their faith. All right, let, and I let think me... the mix of those two things, I don't know, it creates sort of a, a pool of ideas of things I want to write about. And so I'm, I might think of a plot in a place in Scotland or the Civil War or something, but it's all about 
thinking up characters to put in that place that can be asking those same questions that I'm asking. All right. Now you, you just mentioned in a self-effacing way, like you didn't read that much. And you also mentioned just quickly McDonald off the top of your head. I'm guessing that most of our listeners have no idea about that reference to McDonald. And in my opinion, you're, you're probably um, certainly one of, if not the expert on George McDonald in the world. And um, just, should we just say for me, when I discovered McDonald was when I was in college and everybody was into C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and, and the Inklings. And then I discovered George McDonald, who they referred to and just got lost. I was just excited. I couldn't figure out why everybody wouldn't follow me. I kept saying, you got to read McDonald. You got to read McDonald introduced to our listeners. Who is this 19th century? I would say reformed preacher, but you get to describe him your way. Well, I'll commit the supreme heresy that will probably make half the listeners tune out by saying that George MacDonald is even greater than C.S. Lewis. George MacDonald, our website is called Father of the Inklings. George MacDonald lived and wrote in the 19th century. He wrote mostly Victorian novels in the same way that you were sort of, I guess, skeptical about my writing because of that brand of a Christian novelist, to brand MacDonald a Victorian Christian novelist just brings out all sorts of incorrect um, connotations. But McDon- everything you said about my work, about characters and depth and spiritual content is true 10 times over in McDonald. His Victorian novels are about people and situations that explore the depths of who God is and what God purposes for us. He's mostly known in literary circles for his fantasies. My feeling is that his truly great works are his novels. Some might characterize them as romances or Victorian novels, but they are novels about life, and they are wonderful. Everything I am as a writer grows not only out of that evangelical background that I described in the 1950s, but it also grows out of McDonald's work because I... I wanted to write like McDonald writes and bring those kinds of themes into my, into my work. And so that's who McDonald was. His claim to fame is that one of his books more or less began C.S. Lewis's journey out of atheism and which, and eventually Lewis became a Christian and went on later to call C.S. Lewis his master that's pretty high praise for a man like C.S. Lewis. And so you mean, you mean called McDonald as C.S. Lewis called McDonald. C.S. Lewis called McDonald his master. In British parlance, that doesn't mean Lord. Master is teacher. 
right. your master in university or whatever is your teacher. So C.S. Lewis called MacDonald his master, and and Tolkien and all of the other Inklings read MacDonald, but he's still sort of the obscure man behind the scenes in the whole Inklings world. But I contend he's the foundation and most important one of them all. No doubt. Now, let me just take a break for a moment before we continue to mention the organization I work with. Standing Stone cares for the frontline workers in the spiritual world. Ministers, missionaries, recovery specialists. We provide an arm to lean on, an ear to, an ear to listen, understanding from experience with unceasing prayer. This is all done with no cost to those working with Standing Stone Shepherds because of your faithful gifts. Just go to churchhurtsand.org and click the support button to find out how you can be of help today. Now, with that commercial interruption, Michael, can you tell us the story behind many of your book covers? Because that was one of the reasons I was hesitant. Because if one would go into a bookstore, which is not so likely these days, but to look at the book covers, most of them look like they're romance novels, and I just don't think that's fair, even though I admit that the romance is great, and sometimes when you dawdle and don't get there fast enough, I get impatient for it, but how did you get all these romance covers on novels that are just a lot more than that, too? Well, I have to be careful I'm just deeply, deeply indebted to the the publishers who've published my work. And they're, they're wonderful companies. They're fine people. S some of my best friends are those that have worked on my books in, from various publishers. And I love the companies. I love the people. But one of the best-kept secrets is that when you sign on the dotted line, the book isn't yours anymore, and the covers aren't yours, and the text isn't yours. You've turned over all the right. They can do anything they want with even what you've written. Now, as my books began to sell a little more, I was given more freedom to have input and to check the editing and put in my own two cents worth and to put in my own two cents worth about covers, but the short answer is the publishers do the cover and the author doesn't have much to say about it. <laughs> that didn't mean that I didn't argue and complain and say it. I, I had all the same objections. And in a lot of cases, they listened and great. And in some cases they didn't, but basically the covers were not mine and I didn't care for a lot of them too. But I'm so grateful. I'm just grateful for the opportunity to be able to publish. I mean, who yeah. am I to be able to get a book published? I read, I grew up on Donald Duck. So I'm, I'm enormously <laughs> grateful. If it makes you feel any better, I actually one day sat in Tom Clancy's uh, library where he had a big pool table that was covered with books to the, to the ceiling. And he was all wound up, basically swearing and and typing like crazy and spitting stuff off the laser printer and giving it to me and say, read this. And it was because they had changed the plot line 
in a movie they were making on one of his uh, of one of his novels and he was just horrified and of course he got to the place like you have in many ways to, the being able to say, no, this time when I sign on the dotted line, you can't change the ending to the story. <laughs> but, you know, I was, I was a pastor preacher for 25 some years before moving on to other types of work and ministry. And one of the reasons I did move on had to do with an unhealthy attitude I had comparing my work to others. Others could preach it better than I could. They could write better than I could. How do you handle assessing your own work in light of your love for McDonald's and other greats that didn't keep you from writing, that gave you the freedom to pen so many works? Clarify that a little bit. I'm not sure I got exactly what you're asking. Key word in my question was unhealthy. I had an unhealthy attitude where I would hear a great preacher and they would be saying what I want to say. And then I'd go and I'd listen to my own sermon and go, oh, why do I bother? They had to just go listen, you know, to R.C. Sproul or da 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 You know, I'm a human being. And, I mean, there have been more times I'll write a book and send it in. And all of a sudden, here will be this another book. And Judy and I will just say to ourselves, how did they stole it? They, they, and then my book languishes and this other book is a bestseller. And I react like any human. I mean, my book Rift in Time came out about concurrently with the Da Vinci Code. And my human side is saying, my book's a lot better. <laughs> but, you know, the the public would not agree with that. But I'm a human, yeah. yeah. but at the same time, I realized when I began that I had no business writing novels at all. I didn't ever know if I would write a novel and I did McDonald's books for a while and gradually it just dawned on me, you know, you know, I think I might be able to do this and I gave it a try, but early on I was under no illusions that my work was any good at all. I was kind of surprised by the success that my books had, but I learned, I read books on writing. I taught myself to write and I, I learned the craft, but early on my books were, you know, we got a letter one time talking about how wonderful McDonald was, but these books of Phillips, they just don't have much, but I I've, I've learned over the years, I think to write and I'm, it's just enormously gratifying to hear somebody like you talk about what you found in the characters and the themes that I'm trying to build into my writing. The kind of the same types of things that I've always said about McDonald. So at this stage, I'm, I'm just thankful and gratified that there are people that find some good things in my books and yet, McDonald will always be my master too. Let me just ask you about one particular character that I guess just blew my mind in uh, your series uh, on Cal the Caledonia series. Uh, you start out with this couple of people basically wandering through Europe in an undefined period of time. You don't give the dates. You don't talk about 
even you don't say, well, this is really France now. But if you read closely, you're kind of picturing, I guess you would say they were prehistory people, right? That yeah. end up in your mind being the first people to walk into the land of Scotland. I mean, what was it like trying to come up with these people that don't even really have a full language? How, how did you do that? Yeah, that's been a while. It's hard to really um, remember exactly how all that came to be. But I do know the Caledonia series began with two characters. It began with the old guy telling stories of the past. I think his name's Duncan, isn't it? It's, yep. I've kind of forgotten. And the other <laughs> character was the Wanderer. It just was an image that came into my mind of a caveman, pre-caveman. I don't know what era it was either. And the mammoth and hunting down the mammoth. I don't know. It just, my brain just began to imagine. It goes back to what I said before, asking questions. What ifs? I mean, Rift in Time began with the question, what if someone discovered the Garden of Eden? And... Caledonia. What if this man trekked across the wilds and chased mammoths and wound up in Scotland? I don't know. It just it tumbled and grew from there. The the wanderer and the mammoth just took me over. That was kind of the foundation of everything. Um, I'll just switch from kind of that ambiguous prehistory creation there's a, a woman you don't know i think her name is betsy henning uh who was referring your books uh really referring mcdonald and said but um but make sure you get the michael phillips versions of them it brought to mind uh the way you develop these unbelievable strong women consistently in your books I know you you have a co-writer on some of them. In one particularly, I'm thinking of in uh, Secrets of the Shetland series. It starts out with this professional woman in America with a fascinating kind of background. Where do you get all these strong women? What in your life uh, <laughs> gives these wonderful characters with such strength? Well, my wife is sitting over on the other side of the room listening, and it all comes from her. She is my inspiration, and she is the... I don't know if that's exactly true, but what she was telling you before we began about my wife, Judy, and our friend Judith Pella and me when we first started out, and it was a, Judy called it a threesome, and it was, <laughs> it was kind of a committee of three, and we would brainstorm our stories and then Judith and I would write them and Judy would be our kind of our critic and proofreader and all. I don't mean to be flippant, but you know, it was two women and me. So maybe that's part of it, <laughs> you know, part of it. And this is not said in any way negatively, but my publisher back in those days, Bethany, a Christian, sort of romance novel publisher, it was a requirement that romance and women played a central role. You had to do that. So that was kind of my training. And one novel that Judith and I wrote, 
I got a call back at, from the head editor. This is at, after we'd sent in the completed book and she was up to page 70 and there was and there was no female character in the book yet. And she said, you can't do this. You have to put one in. So we had to surgically implant a stowaway on a ship. All the, the, the plot was at sea. Everybody was on a boat and there, we couldn't. So we just had to, all of a sudden the boat had a stowaway and she was a girl. So, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, let let me, let me take a turn on you a little bit. I've always described the screw tape letters by CS Lewis as the book that everybody thinks they could have written. I mean, it is on the one hand, it's so clever. On the other hand, once he starts describing the thinking of, of these uh, demons, if you will, it's like, Oh yeah, I can think like that. Okay. I'll go along with that. And then you read a little more and say, nah, I never could have written, uh, could have uh, written this, but it's the same way. Um, I think about how I was touched on a spiritual level when I read B.B. Uh, Warfield, uh, w- what he did really to my mind. But you do that to my soul. Can you tell me what's really at your heart that is leaks through every one of your books about the character of God that is so powerfully healing? Wow, that's really perceptive. You have hit the nail on the proverbial from McDonald I received, and I think everybody who reads McDonald receives a profoundly new sense of the fatherhood of God. We're all taught about the Trinity and the fatherhood of God, but in our evangelical training, the fatherhood is the shadowy unknown behind the scenes, and it's all about Jesus. And McDonald just really reoriented my thinking to realize that the father was the primary source of life in the Godhead, and Jesus told us as much. And that changed my spiritual perspective from the ground up. And it's that same perspective that I try to bring to my writings. I want people to think about their perceptions of God. That would be the first element. And then the second element, which McDonald also writes about, but I've taken it, I guess, a step further in my own writing, is the commands of Jesus. That the commands, not theology, are the foundation and anchor of what it means to be a Christian. Those two elements, the fatherhood of God and the commands of Jesus, I think are the are the pillars of what I'm trying to do. And I I don't want to preach about it in my books. I want characters who discover those truths in the same way that I did. I want growing characters asking questions, discovering God's fatherhood. And I just say to our listeners, if anything Michael just said 
makes you think, man, I, I, yeah, that's what I struggle with too. Go see in the pages of his books, how people struggle with all the questions that have already come to your mind in light of that. And Michael, I, I just really, really want to thank you and just say a word before we close. I'm glad that you've gotten to meet Michael Phillips today and share the honor with me. Michael has dug deep into his soul to develop characters which allow us access to issues and ideas which otherwise might remain untouched. The same could be said about his pondering about the God of the universe. If he's right, if God is really good, if God really cares personally for those creatures wandering the roads of this world, I want to make sure at every level, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, and practically, that I'm a part of that. I'd suggest you start with The Secrets of the Shetlands, book one, just because that's what I did. Get lost in the woman whose name is not immediately revealed. Her struggles with life and love, parents and God may resonate with you far more than you thought possible. Fiction is a wonderful thing. In uncanny ways, it can open up to us a reality inside ourselves which desperately wants to be revealed. Today is a day I'm struggling with some of the closest relationships in my life. I am very tempted to run away, more tempted to scream in anger and pound my fist, demanding justice on my terms and in my time. It would be easy for me to let that fury build and self-righteousness grow. Instead, I think I'm going to take a long walk, brew a nice slow pot of tea, enjoy a home-cooked meal, and settle down into the pages of An Ancient Strife, the second volume in Michael Phillips' Caledonia series. I will end up napping as Ginny and Andrew conclude their horseback ride, wondering how the sparks of their romance will play out. Somewhere later on in the story, I'll be called to consider the ways of a loving God, My personal fury will subside, realizing how graciously God has forgiven and accepted me for things far worse than what currently others have done to cause my stew. In his later years, the Apostle John said this, See what great love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. I think that's what will fill my mind today. What about you? It's worth a thought for Church Hurts and this is John Bash. Go and enjoy God today, won't you? Well, that was worth a thought for sure and brings us to the end of this edition of Church Hurts and Next week, it's rumored we'll be walking on the edge of controversy, stirring the pot of denial, and finding movement of the divine. Our host, Dr. John Bash, is the Shepherd with Standing Stone, a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors and Christian leaders at risk of leaving the ministry prematurely. Come visit us at churchbirdsand.org. Tell us your story while you're there. Until then, remember, church hurts isn't the end of the story. Now go into the end and enjoy God today, won't you?